Welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to World Exposé. I'm Marcus Connolly, a co-host on the podcast, standing in for your regular host, Loman Begley. Joining us today is the defense editor of The Economist, Shashank Joshi. Shashank joins us to talk through a recent publication in The Economist, unpacking the many elements to the brewing crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean. Thanks for joining us, Shashank. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Shashank, The Economist obviously is such a well-established publication and the defense editor, obviously a very significant role within that organization. Would you mind just giving us a, a kind of brief background of, of who you are and how you came to be in, in such, a, such a role? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, my, my background is essentially as a think tanker, as a researcher. I spent a little while at the, before I started this, I spent a little while at the Tony Blair Institute. I was at a, a think tank at the Tony Blair Institute called the uh, Renewing the Centre Institute, RTC. Before that, I was at a British defence think tank called the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, which is a, a defence and security think tank based in London. And before that, I was pretending to finish a PhD, which I which I never quite finished. Uh, uh, and I was at uh, Harvard University in America and pursuing a PhD in international relations in their government or, or political science department. So I have a sort of semi-academic background, you could say. I've, I've moved between think tanks, policy, academic writing, and now find myself in, in more orthodox journalism. Okay, nice. Very, very, very coloured background. Shashank, I suppose the impetus for my reaching out was that article, Angst in the AG, and that was recently published in The Economist by yourself and a number of other contributors. For those of our listeners who haven't had the chance to read that, could you give us a, a brief synopsis of what's going on in the Eastern Med at the moment and how things have gotten to the stage that they're at? Sure. I mean, I can be as brief as I, I can, as is possible within the confines of an incredibly complicated crisis, but we, yeah. can, we can unpack it. Um, essentially, what we have seen over the past months is rising tensions in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, and that those tensions have been predominantly between Turkey and Greece, two countries that have a long history of tension, and two of their warships effectively collided while stalking each other in disputed economic zones. I think it was now two weeks ago from the time that we're recording this. That is part of a much broader set of tensions they're over the status of Cyprus, maritime boundaries around Cyprus and around Greek islands in the Aegean, over drilling rights in the exclusive economic zones around those islands, over the long history of Greco-Turkish disputes, and over a whole string of other things, uh, other areas where Turkey has been enmeshed in conflict with almost all of its neighbours, almost all of its neighbouring states. So uh, it's an incredibly complicated dispute. And in a way, where we wrote about it because it came to a head, and it is still simmering as we as we speak. Okay, and I think something that most people might find surprising is that at least nominally, Greece and Turkey are allies under the umbrella of NATO. How much do you think that this crisis speaks to the effectiveness of NATO and the the state of things within that organization? That two supposed allies within that are now at loggerheads. Well, there's clearly a problem for NATO here when you have, as you mentioned, two allies uh, whose warships are, are jostling against each other, you know, ripping holes in each other, making these dramatic threats of war and so on. That's clearly a problem. What NATO officials will tell you is, yes, but, you know, if you have a long memory, cast your mind back to 1974, the, the sort of the, the beginning of the Cyprus problem, when Turkey invaded the island, effectively partitioning it into these two different parts that have given us the divided, the divided island of Cyprus today, 
the two countries nearly came to war at that point as well. And, you know, that was that was a that was a, a major problem for the alliance as well. Um, Greece and Turkey had both become members of NATO in 1952. So that problem goes back a long way. The alliance had to grapple with this sort of uh, conflict over Cyprus since the 1970s. The two countries nearly went to war over islands in the Aegean in 1996. And so the purpose of recounting all of that is to say it is a problem for the alliance, particularly given all of the other Turkey problems we're having that we can go through in a second, if you like. But it's not a new problem. It's not a new issue. NATO has been accustomed to grappling with this huge issue within its ranks for years. Um, You know, that's the that's the principal problem. Yeah, I suppose then with regard to NATO, they're, they're well used to keeping Greece and Turkey away from each other's throats. And that's been a long established problem. Turkey's more recent actions, as you mentioned, whether it be as in the Aegean, as we touched on, or Libya or Syria, oftentimes now seem at odds with the rest of that alliance and oftentimes more aligned with some of NATO's adversaries, such as Russia, for example. How viable or how meaningful is Turkish membership in NATO, given that they're so often misaligned with the rest of the bloc? It is still very meaningful. It is still very meaningful. You know, Turkey hosts uh, major headquarters and commands for the alliance. It takes part in the standing maritime task groups. It provides a great deal of manpower to the alliance overall, given the size of its armed forces. Its real estate is still very significant, given that it's a key member of the alliance on the Black Sea. Now, there are other members on the Black Sea, like Romania, but, but Turkey is still very important, and therefore in counteracting Russia's influence in the Black Sea. And for all of the ways in which Turkey has drifted closer to Russia, it still sees Russia as something of a rival in many parts of the world, particularly in places like the Balkans and the Caucasus. So if you talk to NATO officials and you talk to Western officials, yes, there is a sense of frustration over the way that Turkey has become a more authoritarian state in the past five, six years, over the way in which its policy in Syria has disrupted the fight against Islamic State, over the way in which its purchase of a Russian air defense system has caused enormous headaches for the alliance. But for all of that, there is still a realization that Turkey is a is a valued member of the alliance and it could still cause much more trouble were it outside the alliance looking to poke NATO than inside uh, rubbing up against it. The funny thing is at the working level, not at the kind of high political level of Erdogan and, and heads of government and, and high politics, at the working level of soldiers, of navies, of military officials, there is still a pretty strong integration of Turkey into NATO, even if that was uh, if that took a knock after the, the purges that followed the attempted coup in Turkey several years ago. So in other words, the general sense is, yes, Turkey is a sort of challenge to NATO in many ways, but it could get a lot worse and you're still better off with Turkey inside. That's a general consensus, I would say. Okay, so perhaps not as black and white as things might have originally seemed. Yeah, yeah. And better to have them in the tent pushing out rather than out of yeah, the tent pushing in. Ex- exactly. But of course, there are different views on that. If you look back at the interview that President Emmanuel Macron gave The Economist to my colleagues last year, you know, he, he clearly said, he, he famously said NATO has become brain dead. And the reason he said that was because he felt one NATO ally in Syria, that is Turkey in Syria, was invading northern Syria, attacking Kurds, the very same Kurds that other NATO allies, France, Britain, the United States, were using as their allies against Islamic State. And he said, well, that showed a complete lack of political agreement about the common aims of NATO. 
He said, you know, what's the alliance for? And he said, really, the fundamental issue is we have two authoritarian powers in our neighborhood. One of them is Russia and the other one is Turkey. And they both are kind of imperial powers trying to resuscitate old ideas of their empire. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I think it shows you France clearly has a very different position to, to Britain or Germany, who would rather keep Turkey close. I suppose that could lead me then on to my next question with the US under Donald Trump increasingly playing a more isolationist role in the world and with, again, another major partner within NATO, Turkey, kind of playing this rogue role and pursuing its own line of foreign policy. To what extent does that, between those two threats to the alliance, point towards the obsolescence of NATO? Well, again, I think from the French perspective, the word obsolete was used by Macron in that interview. And many people would say, from the French perspective, look, the big issue isn't Russia, it's terrorism. That's what we have to confront. And so NATO isn't doing a good job on that because two of its allies are squabbling in Syria. But I take a different perspective. I think that the Russian challenge is, is very serious, is very real. I think that the news this week about the, the fact that Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader of Russia, was poisoned with Novichok is a, is a reminder of that. And I think if you look at the things NATO has done over the past uh, six years since the Russian invasion of Crimea, which is increase defense spending, create a very high readiness task force, put battle groups in the Baltic states for the very first time, small but sort of significant battle groups, ramp up its activities in the high north and the Arctic areas, invest in cyber warfare and all of these other areas. I could go on and on. For me, I see an alliance that has big problems, particularly with the United States, fundamentally unreliable under this president. But I also see an alliance that has kind of revived itself in many ways from, from the alliance that was busy fighting insurgents in Afghanistan for so many years completely fruitlessly and failing to build the, the Afghan security forces up. I see an alliance that is kind of refocused on Russia and, and the threat of big power conflict, the thing it was originally set up to do. And of course, there will be big political differences between the member states. Uh, that's why the, the Secretary General of NATO has set up a kind of special study group to reflect on what the purpose of NATO should be over the next 10 years. How much should it think about Russia? How much does it need to think about China, about war and space, about cyber conflict? These are good questions. But I think I think to call NATO obsolete would be would be very, very premature, given that it's the most enduring alliance in history and that there really isn't anything like it. You know, if you talk to China, believe me, Chinese officials would bite off their own arm to have anything like a, an alliance resembling NATO. They've got North Korea. You know, great. What a fantastic ally that is. And maybe Pakistan. You know, OK, that's about it. Whereas the United States has 30 plus countries across the world in alliance relationships. So I still see a kind of real value in that. Okay, very interesting. I haven't been, I wasn't familiar with that refocusing, but I must go away and, and look that up. You but you touched on Erdogan and the kind of the erosion of his image or Turkey's image as a reliable ally as he becomes more of a strongman in in his own country. How has that process come about? You, you mentioned the coup, obviously, but versus Turkey being kind of a golden boy and an, an example of uh, a liberal democracy in in the Muslim world. How have we gotten from there to to where things are now? There are different perspectives on this, right? If you look from the inside of Turkey, many people will say Turkey tried to conduct a sort of good faith outreach to the European Union. It wanted to be a member state. It wanted to join up. It wanted to be economically integrated, socially integrated, politically integrated into the European Union. And effectively, it was snubbed. It was snubbed. You know, France took a very strong stand against Turkish membership. If you go back to the Brexit referendum in the UK, the specter of Turkish membership was one that was raised by many illustrious politicians, including Boris Johnson, as a kind of scare tactic about the, the, the you know, the, the Muslim hordes at the door of Europe. And 
uh, that snubbing may have contributed to a kind of more nationalist inward turn within Turkish politics. That is one perspective. Another perspective is that, of course, Erdogan was a was a charismatic demagogue who effectively quashed opposition and used uh, foreign challenges and provocations to rally nationalist supporters behind him in a way that uh, allowed him to shut down opposition, shut down dissent. And the coup, the, the botched coup, um, which uh, I think was in 2016, was a critical moment moment in allowing him to say, look, you know, I wasn't paranoid. They are out to get me. And I, I'm going to shut down my, my opponents now. All I would say in response to this, though, is that we have to be really careful about remembering something, and both in the context of Turkey and in the context of other countries and adversaries like Russia, perhaps China, which is that be careful not to attribute too much of their foreign policy to the guy in charge to the vagaries of the time, to the idea that, oh, they're acting like they are because there is a nationalist autocrat in charge of the country. What I would say is when we go back to the Eastern Mediterranean disputes, for example, where Cyprus is such a central question, and Cyprus is seen as a question of, of justice for Turkish Cypriots in the north of the island, who, 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 of course, the Turkish Cypriot state isn't recognized by anyone else other than Turkey. Those questions, and standing up to Greece about the island, those are not questions on which Erdogan is pursuing some kind of one-man agenda. That is a, a point of consensus within Turkey, a point that is shared with the, the, the opposition and with Erdogan's party and many others. So Erdogan is not just being a kind of crazy autocrat pursuing his own individualist agenda. I would say a lot of the country stands behind him. And even with a different Turkish leader in charge, even with a Turkish Democrat in charge, you may have a different tone. You may have a more kind of nuanced, pragmatic approach, not a leader who's kind of harping on about the Ottoman Empire and making these crazy blood-curdling threats. But you would still have a willingness to stand up to Greece and say, you know, if Greece extends the territorial waters of the Aegean Islands to 12 nautical miles from six, that's an act of war and we'll, we'll respond very badly to that. And they've done that recently on their, on their west coast. They've yeah, they've done it recently on the west coast, but if they do it on the east coast, the Turks have said that's an act of war. And, and that's not to do with Erdogan. Any Turkish government might say the same thing. Um, similarly, if you have the issue of, if you, if you have the issue of Cyprus and the issue of the Greek maritime borders around, particularly around one, one island, Castellarizzo, very close to the Turkish coast. The question about uh, uh, what that means for Turkish versus Greek maritime boundaries, that's a question that any Turkish government would find very sensitive and would push back on. And a lot of Turks I spoke to for the piece I wrote told me that. So I guess what I'm getting at is let's be careful not to make this too much about Erdogan, even if he is a absolutely vital part of the picture. And I think one of the reasons why Turkey is being more aggressive in this current situation than it would have been previously. Okay, you, you obviously touched on very many kind of legitimate Turkish grievances between those islands in the Aegean, close to their, their kind of mainland border, and Cyprus, which I'd actually, I'd like to double back to. But just to come back to, you mentioned um, Turkey snubbing with the EU. I know Francis and Macron in particular has been calling for EU to take more of a, a broader and a kind of a, a stronger approach on its own boundaries and addressing crises that might be popping up on its own borders. How realistic is it to expect a strong stance from the EU, given that the prospect of Turkish ascension now is, is so distant? I would remember that the European Union operates by consensus, right? In some areas, the European Union has something called qualified majority voting, where you don't need a complete consensus of every single EU member state. In foreign policy, you do. <laughs> every single person has to agree. And if anyone disagrees, if Angela Merkel disagrees, you know, let's say Luxembourg disagrees, you can't reach an agreement on sanctions or on a statement or anything else. 
that is a problem. As anyone who has tried to make decisions in a in a 28-member committee understands, that is a problem. And so when it comes to these issues, there simply isn't a consensus. Yes, France is in favor of tough action on Turkey, not just over the Eastern Med, but also in a way we can discuss in a minute over Libya and other issues. But, you know, you have other countries that are very sympathetic. Obviously, Greece and Cyprus, which are the, the kind of the countries at the sharp end of this, agree with France. They would also like tough action on Turkey. But then you have countries like Italy, Spain, who may be sympathetic, they're, you know, the Mediterranean countries, but they also have energy interests, they also have other interests, they don't necessarily want to pick a fight in the same way. You have countries like Germany, who have been mediating between Greece and Turkey, and absolutely don't want to push Turkey away in a reckless way. And so they say, no, 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 we're not, it's too early for sanctions just yet. It's too early to, to pile up the sanctions. I should say, of course, that the European Union has imposed some sanctions on Turkey for its drilling activities in Cypriot waters, but not not very, very heavy ones. And then other countries, you know, don't have a very strong view on this. If you're a northern European country, why would Sweden have incredibly strong views on, on an eastern Mediterranean dispute? So effectively, getting a consensus is very, very difficult. And I think France is frustrated because it feels that with NATO in such a period of kind of uncertainty with American unpredictability and volatility, the European Union has to step up. It has to be a more, what Ursula von der Leyen, the, the commissioner that you calls a more geopolitical commission, what Macron calls European sovereignty. And I think he's frustrated. He cannot get other countries to agree to that. And, well, you know, he feels he's the only one sending French warships to the Eastern Med. He's the only one pushing for tough sanctions on Turkey. So I think that that consensus is going to be elusive. Uh, there is a big meeting coming up at the end of September. And I think if, if Turkey does anything provocative, it may catalyze a degree of EU unity. But otherwise, it's going to be very hard to achieve. So I suppose we'll be watching that meeting um, later on this month. But yeah, with the 28 different states and so many different forces in there, it's, uh, it's hard to see a way for Macron to push that more headstrong agenda at the moment. Another element of that and of this whole crisis and the EU's kind of negotiations with Turkey on any on any topic seems to be Turkey's ability to turn on and off like a tap the flow of migrants from the Middle East into the continent um, and ultimately on destinations like France, the UK, Germany. How significant is this trump card for Erdogan and, and is there anything that the EU as a whole can do to counter this kind of lever that Erdogan has over any actions that they, they try to impose? Uh, again, I think that issue has somewhat faded in significance. Uh, it's still a, it's still an important issue. It's still a lever that Turkey has threatened to use. And it's an issue that's caused real, particularly serious tension between Greece and Turkey in addition to all the other issues. Of course, you know, your listeners may remember that there was a deal between the European Union and Turkey by which the EU effectively bribed Turkey into keeping migrants at home. Uh, it paid Turkey quite a substantial sum of money in order to assist with resettlement, with, with the uh, upkeep of migrants, because Turkey had, you know, borne a significant burden of Syrian refugees uh, from the civil war in that country after 2011. Turkey had done a genuinely impressive job of taking in very large numbers of vulnerable people. And so the EU deal after 2015 was particularly about saying to Turkey, well, you keep people inside Turkey, we'll pay you to do that, and you stop threatening to keep opening up the borders and flooding our, our, our areas with migrants. That 
is still something the Europeans are worried about. It's a little bit less of a political concern than it was in 2015 and 2016, when you had that huge or relatively large flow and that was a very, very politically sensitive within lots of countries. I think, you know, you may have seen some of the news this week about German refugees from that 2015 flow, which shows how well integrated most of them are, how many can speak German, how many are in education, how many have jobs. And I think that that recognition has somewhat taken the edge off the migrant issue in recent years. But it's something that the Eastern European countries are worried about. The Europeans have still struggled to find a mechanism to even out the burden of refugee flows between the Southern Europeans who have borne the brunt of it and the Northern Europeans and Western Europeans who have been more distant and said, no, you have to keep them there. So that political disagreement within the European Union is still present and it's overlaid by all of the other issues around the COVID recovery funding and various other controversial issues. So I think the short answer is yes, the European Union is still concerned about Turkey's ability to use that leverage, but I think it's not as sensitive an issue as it once was. I think what what the real worry is that Turkey will effectively send more warships into the eastern Mediterranean to challenge these claims. Uh, It will send more drilling ships, more survey ships to show it's not going to respect the economic zones of Greece and Cyprus, and it will back that up with warships, and that that will cause uh, a risk of the kind of uh, clashes, the kind of accidents and collisions that we saw a few weeks ago. I think that's the really big concern from the, from the point of view of many Europeans. Okay, really interesting. Also, I wasn't aware of that, that recent story about how well the integration is going in Germany, but that's really encouraging. You mentioned earlier about France's role pushing for EU to take a greater stance in light of NATO somewhat taking a step back in terms of the world order and European sovereignty becoming a, a bigger issue. Why do you see France as being the main driver behind this and Macron in particular? So there are many ways to look at that. France obviously is is the country that has, uh, like Britain, has been has been the member of Europe that is most internationalist, most global, most expeditionary. It's it has a you know for various historic reasons, you know, given French imperial interests, given France's strategic culture, it, it's comfortable with projecting influence and power across. Europe's periphery across the world. It is a, it is historically a North African power as the colonial power in Algeria. That's a power of enormous influence in the Sahel. It has military operations undergoing in the Sahel today. So that's part of it. It has a long history of skepticism and hostility to political Islam. And of course, that is to do with French, you know, laicite and French self-perceptions of their own secularism. So that's why France for a long time was very hostile to Turkish accession to the European Union. You know, that was influenced by that long historical sensibility. The other thing, of course, is France has a number of other interests in the region. Its energy companies are very active in the eastern Mediterranean, both uh, in the eastern Med and in, in Libya. The cynic would say that it has an energy interest at stake and the, the role of French energy companies shouldn't be completely ignored in all of this. Libya is really interesting because I, and I think we have to, we have to discuss Libya because it's what kind of connects the Greece-Turkey dispute and the Cyprus dispute to so much else going on in the region. If I can just give a very quick kind of summary of what's happening in Libya. Colonel Gaddafi was toppled in 2011 in a NATO-backed intervention. The country effectively fell apart into different squabbling militias and, and warlords and, and groups. What eventually settled was a UN-backed government in the West based in Tripoli and a separate seat of authority in the East led by a kind of renegade general called Khalifa Haftar. What the situation is today, if I can, if I can be allowed to simplify it greatly, is that the UN-backed government, the legitimate government, is backed by Turkey which has supported it, partly on the basis that 
It's backed by many Islamist militias, and Turkey, like Qatar in, in the region, is sympathetic to the more, the, these more Islamist militias. And on the other side, in the east, this renegade general is backed by the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, who are both very hostile to any kind of political Islam, and are very anti-Qatar, of course, for that reason in the region. And it's also backed by Russia and by France. And so what happened uh, over the beginning of this year, and over the second half of last year, was that we saw General Haftar make big advances in Libya. He pushed all the way to Tripoli, the capital, and looked like he might take the capital. And he was given a certain degree of diplomatic support by France and all of these other countries, the UAE, Egypt, Russia, and some would say perhaps even military support by France. Then Turkey sent in huge amounts of Syrian mercenaries and advisors and weapons to support the UN-backed government and push Haftar's advance away at the beginning of this year and effectively repelled that advance. So Turkey kind of intervened in dramatic style. And so first of all, you can see immediately how Turkey and France are on opposing sides of the Libya conflict to the point where when uh, when France tried to inspect a, a, a ship that was uh, suspected to be delivering arms to Libya, it was it had a, a standoff, dangerous standoff with a Turkish naval vessel. And which showed you how these two countries, these two NATO allies, were becoming sort of locked into a conflict around Libya over their support of opposing sides. Egypt threatened to intervene. Now, France is very close to the UAE. It's very close to Egypt. It supplies arms to those countries. Um, so it's kind of what you see is a development of this sort of anti-Turkish bloc centered on Libya that was France, UAE, Egypt. And that is tied to another anti-Turkish bloc, which is Greece, Cyprus, and France in the Eastern Mediterranean. But here's the, the interesting thing. Why did Turkey intervene in Libya with all these troops? Well, partly to, because, you know, to support its favoured ally in the conflict and to maintain influence in Libya. But at the same time, it also signed a maritime deal, or rather it cajoled Libya into signing a maritime deal that delineated or kind of set out a division of economic zones and continental shelves between Turkey on the one hand and Libya on the other that effectively runs right across the Mediterranean and was carved up as if the Greek islands of Crete and Rhodes didn't really exist. Which, which is a long-standing Turkish position that islands don't generate economic zones and therefore we're going to ignore them. That's a position that the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas does not support, but Turkey's not a member of the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas. Most other countries are. So anyway, you have Turkey intervening to support its ally in Libya and what it gains is a maritime deal that bolsters its own claims in the eastern Mediterranean against Cyprus, against Greece. And that's the kind of link between the two pieces of the puzzle. And that's exactly, that's the kind of link between these two things. So overall, we see this broad front developing against Turkey involving France, Egypt, the UAE in Libya, maybe even Russia. And in the Eastern Mediterranean, involving Greece, Cyprus, France, and I would also say Israel, which has moved increasingly close to Greece and Cyprus and has become more hostile to Turkey over the past 10 years. So that's the way in which so many of these disputes are really connected in interesting and kind of complicated ways. And what some people would say is Turkey has its back to the wall in the Eastern Mediterranean and its actions in Libya are a way of kind of establishing its own control. And that's before we've even talked about the energy dimension, which yeah. adds another layer of complexity to all of this. It's interesting to note as well that it's actually the French who would kind of, if you were to take a simplistic view as and you'd take France and the EU as being 
the good actors and operating within international norms and Turkey as being that kind of bad faith actor who's kind of breaching those kind of international standards. But you see Turkey backing the UN-backed government and it's actually France that's getting behind this rogue general. Yeah, don't get me wrong, there's an, there's an arms embargo on Libya. So, you know, both parties would be violating UN rules by supplying arms to their favoured actors. But to be honest, everyone's doing it now. <laughs> everyone's yeah. doing it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a party of mercenaries and weapons and drones and warplanes in Libya at the moment. But you're absolutely right. Now, now when it comes to the maritime situation, I will say that Turkey's approach to the Cyprus dispute and to Cypriot exclusive economic zones and to the idea that islands don't generate economic zones, most international maritime experts will tell you that's bunk. I'm, I'm not going to offer you my own view on it because it's so complicated, but most experts in international law will say, okay, Turkey's not a member of the UN law, Convention on Law of the Sea, but Turkey's position on some of this is kind of it's kind of untenable. And its willingness to send warships to back drilling activity is very, you know, is, is a flagrant violation. And, and most of the European Union agrees with France on that, even if they don't agree with the specific response that France is taking. But you're absolutely right to say that we can't understand this without also understanding Fra- France's policy in Libya, its alliance with the United Arab Emirates, and its own interventionist activity in that region in a way that has poked and prodded Turkey in difficult ways. What I would also add is all of this is kind of more sensitive and and, and volatile because what we've had over the past 10 years is very important gas discoveries of uh, of Israel, of, of Egypt, of Cyprus. Turkey has not discovered any new gas of its own, but it says that if anyone is going to be exploiting gas off Cyprus, it has to be done in a way that represents and gives a share of equitable, an equitable share of resources to northern Cypriots. And Turkey considers itself as a sort of protector of northern Cypriots. So it says, well, if you don't give due regard to our co-ethnics in northern Cyprus, our Turkish Cypriot friends, we're not going to let you exploit energy resources in the region. And what has happened in the last year or so is all these other countries I've mentioned, who are kind of at loggerheads with Turkey, have formed something called the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum. And it includes Jordan and Palestine, but also Cyprus, Greece, Italy, Israel, and Egypt. Uh, And France wants to be a member of this. In other words, all of the countries I just talked about who were opposed to Turkey on all sorts of other areas. And they have been coordinating on how to exploit gas resources and potentially build a pipeline to Europe. Turkey feels excluded from those discussions. It wants to be the regional energy hub itself. And so that adds a layer of complexity and tension to all of these kind of 50 or 60 other issues I've I've been discussing. So many aspects to the whole thing. You mentioned there Cyprus um, and the division that's happened on the island there. Obviously, that happened in response to, I think it was a coup attempt and potential annexation by the Greeks of that island. And obviously, you mentioned how in the northern Cyprus, the Turks there are propped up by the Turkish state and they're very closely aligned. How fair is it to say that Cyprus, the EU member state, is closely aligned with Greece and how closely do they work with one another? Oh, extremely closely aligned, extremely closely aligned. Cyprus, uh, I think I think Greece is committed to the protection of Cyprus uh, formally against any sort of hostile act. Of course, Cyprus is now a member of the European Union and ha- has been for a long time. Many people say it should never have been allowed in, but now it is. The European Union is no longer an, a neutral actor. It, it has to defend its member states, as Britain is discovering to its detriment in talks with the European Union. You know, when you're out, you're out, and, and the EU will defend its members however small they are. 
just as Ireland yeah. can enlist the defence of the European Union and the sort of its huge powers against the UK quite effectively, so too can Cyprus enlist the powers of the European Union in many effective ways against Turkey, a non-member state. So Turkey may be a member of NATO and have its NATO allies to help or, ha- or sort of be, be bound in the alliance, but the Cyprus is a member of the EU. So that's hugely significant. You know, a few uh, many years ago when there was a crisis over Cyprus's purchase of the S-300 air defense system for Russia. Ironically, Turkey, which is, which is now locked in a dispute over its own purchase of a Russian air defense system, this was years ago, it was furious and said, how dare Cyprus buy this? You know, we're going to attack this. This is a matter of war itself. Greece took the system and placed it on Crete, where it remains. <laughs> and so you kind of get a sense of how, how you know, intimately involved Greece is. But, you know, this is, this is a very close relationship. But the problem, of course, is anyone who looks at a map will see, look where Cyprus is, look where Turkey is, Look where Greece is. Who do you think is in a better military position to influence events on Cyprus? <laughs> you know, this is a not, an, not an easy military job for Greece, which spends less than Turkey on its military, has a weaker navy, uh, a much weaker navy. It has a decent air force and a, and a sort of advantage in some areas like submarines. But on the whole, when it comes to the military side of things, Greece is not in a very strong position, which is precisely why it needs the assistance of France and others. I suppose you might have seen that in, in the original division of Cyprus when the Turks obviously got yeah. the upper hand there. But I will say that the U- the US is also weighing in more on the side of Cyprus. Back at the, I think at the end of last year, they lifted an arms embargo on Cyprus. The Greek-American community is quite influential politically, of course, so that also weighs in on some of these issues. Now, the, the Americans are being more generous to Cyprus on provision of arms, training, visits by aircraft carriers. It obviously weighs in nicely for the Greeks and the Cypriots and the French when it comes to deterring the Turks as well. So I would not say that the Americans are completely absent. There's still, a, you know, still a meaningful force in, in this part of the world. You've mentioned once or twice how in 1996 the Greeks and the Turks nearly went to war over two tiny islets, I believe, and not even inhabited islets. How feasible do you see an escalation from a miscalculation in, in this current crisis as being? Very feasible, sadly, I think. The rhetoric is, is very, very high. We're seeing the... Greek president visit an island whose waters are disputed, uh, Castellarizzo, very soon, I think later this month. Turkish rhetoric, I think, has become very extreme and quite disturbing in some places. There was a report in a German newspaper that Erdogan had given orders to damage a Greek warship. I don't know whether that's true. I can't corroborate that, but it's an interesting report. A senior Greek official told me a few days ago that he felt the risk of a conflict was the highest it has been since the formation of the European Union. In other words, since the the post-war period, which was a striking thing to say, given how close uh, we came to conflict in the 1970s and in the 1990s. And I think, you know, what's worrying is it feels like a very febrile time. There's an American election coming up. The Americans is distracted. There's a French willingness to kind of uh, step in. The Turks feel their backs are to the wall. Britain is is kind of completely out of this conversation. It is it, nowhere to be found. I, I feel the sort of chips are a bit in the air, you know? The, the, the balance of power is a bit uncertain and hazy, and that makes for a dangerous situation. What we wrote in our piece was that if the Turks decide to send drilling ships to the waters of Crete, that would be seen as a much more serious provocation. And of course, if they, if there was another collision, if there was another confrontation, if um, there is a, a more aggressive Turkish position in terms of the numbers of ships they send, any of those things could cause a serious problem. Uh, or even a confrontation over Libya, as we saw earlier this year between France and, and Turkey and their ships. I'm worried by all of that. I would keep a very close eye on it. I, I still think that, in a way, Turkey may be deterred from going up against such a formidable array of states, and it knows that it will provoke 
more sanctions against it by the EU if it does anything really silly at a time when its economy is already in a very vulnerable state. But as I said, when countries feel their backs are to the wall, they can lash out in unpredictable ways. And of course, the line that we ended our piece on was a quote from a former Turkish ambassador to the European Union who said, in the past, there was the army and the president who acted as a break on Turkish policy. But now there is no break and a guy, in other words, Erdogan, who's completely unpredictable. And to hear a former Turkish ambassador say that, I think, is a, is a sobering thing to hear. I suppose it speaks volumes as well to him, which has been eroded away in the, the checks and balances within Turkey, as in there would have been so many other aspects that could have acted against things moving towards a one-man state or a strongman kind of state. And now it's, it seems it's it's gone that way. Yeah, and again, I would emphasise that let's not forget any Turkish government would be standing up to the Greeks, they'd be standing up to the French, they'd be standing up for their interests in Libya. Many of these are Turkish national interests that would be pursued by any government, but the rhetoric, the the willingness to accept risk, the willingness to push ahead in more uh, forthright ways, I think that is compounded by the, the personalities uh, involved as well. Definitely. A question then on, as you mentioned, that some of these grievances are completely legitimate and any Turkish leader would back them up no matter how democratic they are. How viable and realistic is the prospect of locking in a country that's as ambitious as Turkey? Post-World War One, a lot of the islands in the Aegean and on Turkey's coast obviously went to the Greeks. Is it wise or is it even possible or viable to try and limit Turkey to such a, a small area and to try and block them in so effectively? Yeah, I mean, I should say when we talk about blocking in, you know, if you look at the map of the Aegean, you'll see that, you know, you've got this huge Turkish coastline and onto the west of it in the Aegean Sea, you've got these smattering uh, Greek islands all the way up against the Turkish coast. Now, under the law of the seas, these islands generate economic zones <laughs> and they generate territorial waters. The problem is if they're all up against Turkey, they kind of hem Turkey in. Now, let me be clear. It does not mean that Greece has the right to say Turkey cannot send ships out into the Aegean and into the Mediterranean. That's not what it means. Under the law of the sea that Greece is a party to and Turkey isn't, there is a right of innocent passage. You know, you can send military warships out through other countries' waters if you were just passing through. That's completely acceptable. What you can't do is drill for resources. What you can't do is do military exercises or, or kind of that kind of thing. So, you know, the Turkish line, oh, we're hemmed in. We have to be careful what that means. But what people will say is if you look at this coast at the end of the day, it does leave Turkey with pretty small economic waters in the Aegean. What the Greeks say is, look, you know, that may be true, but un unfortunately, the law is the law. We didn't make it up. We didn't choose Turkey's geography or our archipelagic geography in the Aegean. And... At the end of the day, let's go to court and arbitrate this, if you think this is a problem. Let's go to court and arbitrate this. And the Greeks say, well, the Turks have not taken us up on that. So, you know, from the Greek perspective, they're willing to negotiate, they're willing to arbitrate. You know, that's a, a problem that I think will require mediation, will require discussion, because Greece knows that it may have to compromise on some of this, I think. But compromise has become very, very difficult in the current situation. But sorry, on your broader point about Turkey being boxed in, not just in a kind of maritime and naval sense, but in a broader sense, I think you're right. It's been projecting its power in various other ways to compensate. Libya being the most obvious one, but of course it's kind of its alliance with Qatar is a significant one. It has sent significant troops to Qatar and established a base in that country in order to kind of push back against uh, Qatar's own dispute with the other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And, you know, it's a it's significant power in terms of competing for influence in somewhere like Lebanon. Um, it's a power in, in building its relationship with Hamas in, in Gaza. So it is projecting its influence in other ways, of course, many of them in ways that, that other countries find destructive and threatening. So I suppose if they're hemmed in on one angle, they're going to find another angle to project their power. Yeah.
An interesting element of the article that was published recently in The Economist deals with the potential for undersea resources to unite historical foes and traditional foes. And Israel and Egypt are given as examples of this. What lessons are there to be learned for the Greeks and the Turks from that collaboration between two historical enemies? So when energy resources were discovered, there was a great hope that perhaps this would, you know, everyone could, you could smother all of these disputes in gas wealth. I'm not an expert on the exploitation of undersea resources, and a lot of the reporting on this came from our energy correspondent in, based in New York, who knows the issues inside out. But the general sense is that, you know, what we saw in January was Greece, Cyprus and Israel agreed a pipeline to carry quite a lot of natural gas in a way that would bypass mainland Turkey. And, you know, what the Turks say is that actually, no, this this is unhelpful, this excludes us. What the Turks would like to do is say, well, our approach is more viable. We have the Trans-Anatolian Pipeline, uh, T-A-N-A-P, that can deliver significantly more gas to Europe from Azerbaijan via Turkey. Uh, but the problem is that to fulfill all of that gas supply, what you would need is either gas from Turkmenistan or from Kurdistan, or from Israel, to go through Turkey. And when you have all of these other disputes, countries are not keen on doing that. They're not keen on going through through Turkey for that purpose. So to energy experts, I apologize if I've mangled any of the sort of specific details there, because I find pipeline politics very difficult to get my head around, and, and I had to rely on my colleagues for this. But the long and short of it is that the possibility of using energy cooperation to soothe diplomatic tensions is working in other parts of the region, but I think it is not working for Turkey. And I think actually the cooperation pursued by other countries, particularly the group I talked about, the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, you know, the Cypriots, the Greeks, the Italians, the Israelis, the Egyptians, that is leaving Greece feel even more excluded and even even more pushed aside. But of course, what I should also say is there is a question mark over how viable any of these projects are, given how expensive and difficult it is to build pipelines deep under the Mediterranean over long distances at a time when gas prices are falling, when energy demand may be falling, when COVID demand shocks have changed the picture as well. So I don't want to give the impression there's this big energy boom that is just you know, leaving Turkey on the sidelines. The very question of whether there is going to be a boom at all, I think, is also a kind of open one um, and may not transpire in the way that people think it will, given the current economic situation and the energy picture across the world. Those pipeline politics that you mentioned, you could probably do a whole entire episode on that just to yes, itself. Yes, absolutely. My next question is kind of, again, related to that, so I hope I'm not pressuring you to speak on a, on a topic that you might not be comfortable with, but this one's more wide and more open. It's interesting that fossil fuels, again, are still so worth fighting over when so many of these countries are signed up to the Paris Climate Accord. Do you see in the future of geopolitics that many of the clashes are going to be over resources? In this case, obviously, it's over hydrocarbons under the seabed, but... In other areas, we're seeing countries clash over access to waters. I think Egypt is clashing with Ethiopia over the potential of damming of the Nile. That same prospect has been raised in India of some of their crucial waterways being dammed up in the Himalayas. How much do you see this impacting countries' relations with each other? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right to point out that when we talk about resource competition, focusing on hydrocarbons is not necessarily the most helpful thing. You've already given very good examples. Egypt, Ethiopia is a very, very uh, salient one at the moment, given the way that tensions have spiked sharply, you know, threats of conflict. Uh, India, China is something I look at as well. India, Pakistan, where there's a long-standing treaty, but also has come under some a little bit of strain in, in the last several years. I look at the Arctic as well, where melting Arctic ice sheets are opening up the northern sea route and are raising the possibility of exploitation of resources in the Arctic. And that's also a contested area. That's an area where continental shelves are contested. Rights of passage in economic zones are contested. 
America has been, you know, threatening to conduct freedom of navigation operations up up in the Arctic. And of course, uh, I would also point to rare earth materials, which are vital materials used in modern supply chains for things like mobile phones and semiconductors and, and, and other high-end products. And China has hitherto dominated the supply of rare earth materials, not because it, it has the majority of them, but because it, it's able to produce and exploit those. But the fact that China restricted the supply of rare earth materials to Japan 10 years ago, or, or roughly 10 years ago, prompted many other countries to think, well, how do we secure our own supply of this? How do we diversify? How do we diversify supply chains? So I don't have much to add on that other than to say that I think the way in which the US-China trade war and the breakdown of international supply chains during the pandemic has sensitized countries to the degree to which they are vulnerable to resource and input shocks and has forced them to think about diversifying supplies. And that may compound some of the geopolitical tensions we're seeing over resources. You know, water is a special case because water is so absolutely vital for countries like Pakistan or Ethiopia and Egypt. So absolutely vital. But in other cases, I think we may see a kind of push for diversification, a push for resource, kind of not putting all your eggs in one basket, particularly as large, powerful countries begin to use these and try and build up their own strategic reserves. That's not a very insightful answer, but that's my impression. No, definitely. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. I think that could be a discussion for another day or or even another uh, podcast episode. But um, thank you so much, Shashank, for coming on and talking to us about all things Eastern Med and the, the tensions and the crises there. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. That was Shashank Joshi, the defense editor of The Economist, joining us to unpack the many layers to the current crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean. That initial article, Angst in the Aegean, first appeared on the 20th of August in The Economist. Since then, their coverage has continued and is well worth checking out. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it. And maybe give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. See you next week.